G'day, folks, and welcome. I'm Chris Faber. And I'm TJ Stedman. And you're listening to the Answers to Giant Questions podcast coming to you from sunny Western Australia. G'day, folks, and welcome back to another episode of the Answers to Giant Questions podcast, best of Q&A series, as we tackle your questions about the biblical giants. This is the final episode of our best of Q&A series so get excited because next week we get into the flood story. That's going to be great. But right now we're focused on what becomes of the giants. And I hope you find this interesting. If you haven't heard it for a while, it'd be good to uh, get a bit of a refresher on that before we get back into Genesis 6 and the story of the flood. I want to hear your giant questions. If you have a question about stuff you've heard on the show or somewhere else, something you found in your Bible, or just some general feedback you'd like to tell us and the world at large, here's how you do it. Head to the website giantanswers.com. I personally receive all your mail and I will try to get to all of it. I love hearing from you, especially if I can help you get answers to your giant questions. So we have a question from an anonymous survey responder who asks, what has happened to the skeletal remains of giants? Why has the truth been covered up? Hmm, good question. Good question. I do get this one a lot too. Well, I think it's helpful first to get an idea of the scale of this issue. What kind of populations should we reasonably expect to have found in the region described in the biblical text? I would suggest that the ancient Near East in the antediluvian period probably supported many hundreds of thousands of individuals until the population began to deplete resources and turn in on itself. And that's the situation we have at the time of Noah. So if there were so many hundreds of thousands of people in that area at that time, why aren't we finding remains? Well, the first way to tackle that, I guess, is to ask what things can happen to remains that would deplete the amount discoverable in the modern age? I mean, there's got to be a reason why we don't find every single creature that ever died laying in the surface of the earth. And uh, I've come up with a little list of factors that we've got to take in. Um, I wasn't trying to be a typical uh, evangelical preacher, but I've got five C's. And the first is catastrophe. Okay, so that's warfare, flood, you know, natural disasters and large-scale conflicts and uh, acts of God and that kind of thing. Okay, so obviously the, the, the first one that comes to mind is the flood of Noah. All right, so, you know, Genesis 6 to 8 makes it clear that, of course, there was a massive cataclysm. Uh, many thousands of people were wiped out. And it's a flood. It's, it's not some orderly sort of thing where everything was just neatly and tidily laid down. So with the chaotic nature of flooding, and if anyone's experienced flooding, you know that stuff that you put down in one place can be found miles away later on if it is ever found at all and uh, so that's going to have a massive impact on the amount of uh, bodily remains that we can expect to find in such an area uh, I would imagine a lot of uh, remains would have just simply been washed out to sea and, and that kind of thing so 
that's probably the biggest factor. Okay, so after catastrophe, we have culture. Okay, and uh, in this, we've got things like the way that people lived, and one of those big factors was migration. You know, uh, it was common in biblical times for people to migrate, and they would take with them the bones of their ancestors. That means that, once again, we're going to find that bones are not put down in the same place where you would expect to find them. Uh, as an example, in Genesis chapter 50 and verse 25, Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry my bones up from here. So Joseph died, being 110 years old. They embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. Okay, so he died in Egypt. Uh, he was put in a coffin in Egypt, but his bones didn't stay there. They took his bones to Canaan. Okay, so there's one example of how uh, bodily remains don't necessarily stay put. Exodus 13 uh, and verse 19, Moses took the bones of Joseph with him. Joseph had made the sons of Israel solemnly swear, saying, God will surely visit you and you shall carry up my bones with you from here again. So that's uh, another reference to the same event. There you go. I mean, with two attestations of the same thing, uh, we're certainly getting a confirmation that this practice was done. All right. Um, and culturally speaking, there are other reasons why uh, bodily remains might not um, be found where we expect to find them or may not be found at all. And uh, particularly when it comes to rituals around uh, the dead and their ongoing uh, participation in family life. Now, you might be scratching your head at that remark, but uh, uh, particularly in the Transjordan area and throughout Canaan, we had uh, the Amorite populations. They had uh, a lot of uh, religious practice around the uh, veneration of the dead ancestors. They erected funerary dolmens, you know, those big structures that uh, kind of look like a, a table made out of two upright slabs of uh, stone with a third one across the top. Uh, kind of look like the symbol for pi. And they stand up in the uh, wilderness all over the Transjordan to this day. Uh, those structures, uh, funerary monuments, so they were built... What, what they do is they sort of create a doorway, right? Because there's that passage through the middle uh, between the two standing stones and the, and the top stone uh, across between them. Sort of provides a doorway. And the idea was uh, that the, the dead person be passed through that doorway uh, into the afterlife. They would then put the remains of the dead person up on the top and leave it there to be defleshed. And that's the nice way of saying that uh, they left them there until the birds and beasts came and picked all the meat off the bones. After that, they would keep all the bits that were left, if anything, and that would be transported back to the family home where they would bury them uh, under the floor. And uh, they would make a special provision uh, to be able to participate 
in family meals with the dead. Now, that sounds weird, doesn't it? What they did was they put a special tube down into the ground. And uh, so that would stick up uh, out of the floor in the house. And uh, every so often, um, I believe it was around uh, New Moon, they would have a special family ritual. The family will get together. They conduct uh, something like a seance and they uh, invite their dead relatives to participate in a meal with them and they've got this tube sticking up there through which they would pour uh, offerings of drinks and they'll have a little uh, statue a little idol uh, set up in in the home and they would uh, present it with food and that sort of thing and that's how they uh, honored their dead relatives by uh, inviting them to uh, participate in a meal with them now, uh, these libations, or the, the drinks that they would uh, offer their dead relatives are usually uh, something like beer or that sort of thing. So, you know, a fermented drink goes down into a hole containing bodily remains uh, over and over and over again. You can imagine uh, over the course of time, there's not going to be too much left under the ground there. Uh, so again, uh, remains from this period are really, really scarce. Uh, so... These are just some of the considerations that we've got to factor in when we ask, you know, why aren't there more uh, remains from this time period? Moving on to another, I suppose this is an aspect of culture as well, but I'm going to give it special treatment, and that is cannibalism. So uh, if you're familiar with the book of First Enoch, it actually says that these uh, giants have become so ravenous, they... Uh, depleted the natural resources around them they turned on mankind and started eating them and they even ate one another so again this is another reason why we're not going to find as many remains as we might expect you know i had a bit of a laugh because someone reminded me the other day of that uh, creepy video with the little kid who says chicken nuggets is like my family and i hadn't really thought about cannibalism in that context before but uh I can't get it out of my head now. I don't know if I'm going to watch that video again. Anyway, uh, let's move on. <laughs> Our fourth C is carrion. Okay, so I mentioned before that birds and other animals may eat human remains. There are no shortage of creatures that will do that in the, uh, in the Middle East. Um, we've got all sorts of things like jackals and hyenas and, of course, vultures, eagles... Falcons, you know, many other um, birds and beasts of prey, they're certainly not afraid to uh, to eat human remains, and they will eat the bones. So that's a major factor as to why we're not finding bones around the place. We sort of assume that uh, that scavengers will just eat the flesh and leave the bones, but that's not always the case. There are animals that will just gnaw on a skeleton until it's gone. So that's another factor. You know, those are things that have been happening for centuries. One of the more recent things that's really made a big impact, and I mean, it's always been going on, it's just accelerated pace now, and that's construction, okay? So the progress of civilization over time, you know, uh, things get built and they fall into decay and ruin, and then they get destroyed, and then they get flattened, and something else gets built on top. And that happens over and over and over. And uh, when you 
look at these ancient sites, you'll often find that the excavations being done to uncover ancient cities are done on hills because the land has just been built up over and over and over on top of ancient remains. And so we end up with these big hills. So the destruction of the natural landscape as it was is inevitable and that means that anything uh, within that uh, geological strata is going to be lost to us uh, if people aren't careful. I know they make a big fuss in the, um, you know, particularly in the Holy Land now, checking everything carefully to make sure that they're not digging up something sacred by accident. And uh, many of the greatest discoveries of recent times have come about as a result of you know, uh, we were going to put a road down and then lo and behold we discovered an ancient palace and all this kind of thing. So yeah, that's um, just another one of those factors that uh, comes into play when answering that question of why don't we find ancient remains uh, anymore? This this idea of a, a cover-up is an interesting one, you know. Um, the the original uh, question, you know, why was why has the truth been covered up? Well, uh, I'm not saying there hasn't been a cover-up because I don't know that there has but it wouldn't take much to hide a small handful of remains if any have been found. And some, probably just hiding in plain sight. You know, while we... Uh, while I've been reading about the excavation at Tel Es Safi, which is the biblical city of Gath, uh, I noticed that when a spokesperson for the dig was asked about whether they'd found giant remains... He said they'd found no evidence of remains taller than an average NBA center. Now, I, I did reference that article in my blog. Uh, so, so I looked it up. An average NBA center stands at six foot nine. In an era when the average Israelite male measured five foot three. And, and then we consider the textual evidence. According to the Septuagint, the Dead Sea Scrolls, Goliath stood at six foot nine. So the giants did exist, and they are being found. But our modern standards simply don't recognize them for what they are. Part of that is forgetting that your average NBA center walking around in ancient Palestine would have been an exceptional phenomenon, not a relatively common sight as it is today. Another part is the mistaken belief that if we actually found remains in conjunction with concrete evidence that the specimen in question was of the Nephilim or Raphaim, etc., uh, we seem to think that they ought to be as tall as cedar trees or miles high due to over-literalization of source texts. The fact is, you're not going to find Jack and the Beanstalk scale giant remains. And it's that kind of misinformation that provides the real cover-up. While people keep posting fake images on YouTube, quoting sensationalist-era newspaper clippings from the turn of the 20th century in America, and misrepresenting scripture to support their fantasies, others are out there in the dirt digging up remains of people over a foot taller than the average human of that day, and saying that since they aren't 16 feet tall, they don't count as giant remains. So, hopefully that gives a little perspective on the situation with the remains of giants. You can decide for yourself whether there really is a cover-up, if you can figure out who exactly is covering what.
Tom asking from the land of Facebook wants to know, did the Giants turn to stone? Well, Tom, funny you should ask at a time when I've just referenced the song of Ulikumi. Didn't plan that at all. Uh, not. Thanks for your question, by the way. Now, unlike Peter Jackson's idea of stone giants in the Hobbit film, which appear to be a natural part of the landscape in that enchanted world, or the rock-encrusted elemental angels of Darren Aronofsky's movie Noah, which I talked about with Joe Zaragoza on his Commentarians podcast. The Hittite vision of a terrifying living monolith was a product of divine intercourse with the earth itself. Now the catch is, when we read Tolkien or watch those movies, we get to cheat. We get real stone giants presented to us, living, moving, throwing stones the size of cars and apparently oblivious to the microscopic people below. But the Song of Ulikumi is not that kind of literature. It's not fiction. Now that might raise a few eyebrows, but let's not get carried away. This is ancient poetry, and it's designed to convey truth from a certain point of view. Not that stone giants were real, but that giants were somehow connected to the idea of a colossal stone structure that had its foundations in the deep and its top in the heavens. A structure that had something to do with 17 nations, and was thwarted by the creative tool of the Most High as we saw earlier. A story designed to tell the tale of how the king of the land lost his position of power when his national god was defeated by another. The Tower of Babel is the Bible's way of communicating these core truths. But of course it's the Bible that we take as the authority on the matter. And archaeological evidence at Eridu backs up the biblical claim, not that of the ancient Anatolian pagans. Anyway, the point of bringing up the Song of Ulikumi in the first place is that even in the 15th century BC, there were stories of giants that were made of stone. But that's not what our mate Tom was asking. It sounds to me like Tom was more interested in the idea of human-based giants like the Nephilim or Rephaim actually turning to stone, being petrified. Now there are myths, of course, like the Greek Medusa and the other Gorgons. That might be the most well-known, but all over the world there are stories of giants turned to stone. People have for thousands of years seen shapes and forms in the landscape that they thought resembled grotesque giant human remains. The phenomenon is called pareidolia. Now seeing the Virgin Mary in your toast is one thing, but are petrified giants really another? Well, no. The difference is though, people haven't been looking at the same piece of toast for hundreds of years thinking the same thing. Stories have always been made up about rock formations to explain their shape, and these take on a life of their own. They get passed down from generation to generation, and these phenomena appear everywhere from Australia to India to South America. Over time, the stories acquire an air of truth because of their history. They start to get a, a sense of genuineness because of their antiquity. Unfortunately, and I don't say this directed at our mate Tom who brought us this question, uh, many gullible souls have been taken in by these kinds of stories. They see a face in a rock formation or a piece of red quartz that looks like a chunk of meat, and they insist that if it looks like a duck and quacks like a duck, then it must be a petrified human giant. There's one born every minute. And if you've heard that expression before, you might have heard of the Cardiff Giant. The Cardiff Giant is one of the world's most famous hoaxes. Back in 1869, an atheist by the name of George Hull commissioned a 10-foot-tall sculpture of a giant man, and he went to a great deal of trouble to make it appear as though it really was the remains of a petrified giant, accidentally discovered during the digging of a well on his cousin's property. 
Hull's deception was quickly discovered and the sculpture was declared a hoax. But not before Hull's cousin had made a fortune, charging admission to see it, on the pretense that it was genuine. Eventually, the famous showman, P.T. Barnum, offered to buy the giant from its second owner, David Hannum, but his offer was refused, so Barnum had a copy made in secret, and then claimed his was the real deal. When Hannum discovered that people were paying fortunes to see Barnum's fake, fake giant, he allegedly coined the phrase, there's a sucker born every minute. So keep that in mind as you consider the reason that George Hull decided to start this elaborate hoax in the first place. He did it after having an argument at a Methodist revival meeting about the idea that the giants of Genesis 6, if they were indeed real, must certainly have been petrified in the great flood of Noah's day. Obviously, as an atheist, his position was against the reality of the pre-flood giants altogether. I've already gone into detail in my book Answers to Giant Questions about the reality of the giants themselves. But the real kicker is the petrifaction idea. Now, later in this podcast, when we get to talking about the flood, we'll tackle the reality of Noah's flood, and we'll see why the petrifaction theory is really quite far-fetched. But that didn't stop a number of preachers and ministers who'd seen the sculpture with their own eyes from defending the Cardiff giant as genuine because they thought it supported the biblical text. Now, I've already talked on this show in a previous episode about the likelihood of discovering remains that old. Add to that the fact that this giant was discovered in the USA, not the Middle East, and it goes from highly unlikely to highly suspicious. Of course, the geologists who examined it proved the hoax, and how stupid do those preachers look now for defending the fake giant made by an atheist in an effort to prove the Bible and validate Christianity? Again, I'm not targeting the guy who sent in this question, so no offence, Tom, but let's all take a moment to hit the reset button on our need to prove the Bible. Forget every YouTube video you ever saw, every 19th century newspaper clipping, every photoshopped picture you've seen online, and every odd-shaped rock that someone swears must be a fossilised giant's heart or a face poking out of a hillside. Forget them all. Because what proves Christianity, beyond a shadow of a doubt, is the witness of a life transformed. Stephen asked, can you address the atonement possibility for A, the 200 angels in Tartarus, and B, the spirits of the angel-Adam hybrid offspring? Thank you. And thank you, Stephen. Well, would you look at that? We were just talking about atonement too. Well, that's a good question, or two questions, I, I guess, from Stephen. So thanks for that. Let's have a look and see what we can find. Uh, all right, so firstly, for those who are unfamiliar with this concept, this is coming from some text in the New Testament. It's 1 Peter chapter 3 and verses 18 through 20. Let's just have a read of that before we start. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. So here we have these imprisoned spirits, and to get a bit more specific, we've got another passage by the same author. This is Second Peter chapter 2, verse 4. 
For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness, be kept until the judgment. Okay, so there we have two references to these imprisoned spirits. Here in the ESV, you have one occasion where they are called spirits and another where they are called angels. This gets referenced as well in the book of Jude, which pretty much restates the same material from Peter. This is generally understood to refer to the events of Genesis chapter 6 and the rebellion of the sons of God who took human wives and had offspring who were the Nephilim. Because of the ambiguity of the Greek language, we don't have the kind of technical terminology to be able to differentiate between different classes of divine beings like you do in Hebrew. Anyone who tries to impress you with notions of the superiority of Greek language because of some kind of so-called precision obviously hasn't thought about issues like this. Obviously. I mean, really, do your homework, people. This is, this is pretty basic. So these are not ordinary angels. They're a higher class of divine being with some degree of executive level agency rather than the simple function of being divine messengers, as is the case with regular angels. The next issue is how do we know about their imprisonment? There's nothing about that in the Old Testament. The New Testament authors are getting that information from the book of First Enoch. The First Enoch chapter 10 in verses 4 to 6. And again, the Lord spoke to Raphael, Bind Azazel hand and foot, and put him in the darkness. Make an opening in the desert, which is Dudael, and put him there. And lay upon him rough and pointed rocks, and cover him with darkness, that he may remain there forever, and cover his face, that he may not see the light. And on the great day of judgment, he will be cast into the fire. Okay, so in that passage from First Enoch, we have the idea of these divine rebels being restrained and cast down into some horrible place. It's also First Enoch that gives us the number of 200 individuals who participated in this. Peter is obviously familiar with Greek mythology because he's used a Greek equivalent for the location of these divine rebels in this deepest and darkest of places. He calls it Tartarus. That place was said by the Greek poets to be as far below the earth as the earth is below heaven and was considered to be the worst possible place you could go in the underworld. Tartarus is really not the same thing as hell, so the translators have let us down there. Most translations are using something like hell, and that's just unfortunate because it loses all the nuance of the original. But just when we thought we could be all smug about Koine Greek not being all that, now we realise that English isn't much better. Yeah, come on, people. I mean, this is just embarrassing. Oh, hang on. You're saying that our translation is even worse than the Greek. Well, you know, that kind of thing could happen to anyone, right? Uh, yeah, so so these 200 watchers, the sons of God, according to Genesis 6, are presently restrained, and they were visited in their imprisonment by none other than the Lord Jesus Christ in the time between his death and resurrection. They had another visitor prior to that, according to First Enoch, that was Enoch himself. Enoch was sent to these rebellious watchers by God to deliver a message. I'm going to read a passage from First Enoch now which addresses some of what was going on while Enoch could not be found, according to Genesis 5, and concerning what happened in Genesis 6, 1-4. This is chapters 12-14 to 14 from the Shod translation, which was written back in 1882. Uh, prepare for ye oldie language. Uh, starting, where are we? First Enoch chapter 12, um, verse 1, through to chapter 14, verse 7. 
And previous to all these things, Enoch was hidden, and not one of the children of men knew where he was hidden, and where he was, and what had become of him. And all his deeds were with the holy ones and with the watchers in his days. And I, Enoch, was praising the great Lord and the King of the world. And behold, the watchers called to me, Enoch the scribe, and said to me, Enoch, thou scribe of justice, go, announce to the watchers of heaven who have left the high heaven and the holy eternal place, and have contaminated themselves with women, and have done as the children of men do, and have taken to themselves wives, and are contaminated in great contamination upon the earth. But upon earth they shall have no peace nor forgiveness of sin, for they will not enjoy their children. They will see the murder of their beloved ones, and they will lament over the destruction of their children, and will petition to eternity, but mercy and peace will not be unto them. And Enoch, departing, said to Azazel, Thou wilt have no peace, a great condemnation has come upon thee, and he, that is uh, Raphael, chapter 10, verse 4, read that earlier, will bind thee, and alleviation and intercession and mercy will not be unto thee, because thou hast taught oppression, and because of all the deeds of abuse, oppression, and sin which thou hast showed to the children of men. And then going, I spoke to them altogether, and they were all afraid. Fear and trembling seized them. And they asked me to write a memorial petition for them, that they thereby might attain forgiveness and carry their memorial petition before God into heaven. For they could not from now on speak with him, nor could they raise their eyes toward heaven from shame on account of their sins for which they were being punished. Then I wrote this memorial petition and prayed with reference to their souls and for each of their deeds and for that which they had asked of me, that they thereby might obtain forgiveness and patience. And going, I sat down near the waters of Dan, in Dan, which is to the right, i.e. south, of the evening side, i.e. the west, of Hermon, and read their memorial petition till I fell asleep. And behold, a dream came to me, and visions fell upon me, and I saw the vision of chastisement, to show to the sons of heaven, and to upbraid them. And having become awake, I went to them, and they were all sitting assembled, lamenting at Uber's Jael, which is between the Lebanon and Seneza, with their faces covered. And I related before them all the visions that I had seen in my sleep, and commenced to speak those words of justice, and to upbraid the watchmen of heaven. This writing is the word of justice and the admonition of the watchers who are from eternity, as the Holy and Great One commanded it in this vision. I saw in my sleep what I will now relate with a tongue of flesh, and with my breath, which the Great One has given to the mouth of men, that they might converse with it and understand in their hearts. And he has created and given to men the power to understand the word of knowledge. Thus also he has created me, and given to me the power to upbraid the watchers, the sons of heaven. I have written your petition, and in my vision it appeared to me thus that your petition will not be granted in all the days of the world, and that judgment has been passed over you, and nothing will be granted unto you. And from now on, you will not ascend into heaven to all eternity, and upon earth it has been decreed. They shall bind you for all the days of the world. But before this, ye will have seen the destruction of your beloved children, and ye will not be able to possess them. But they shall fall before you by the sword. Your petition for them will not be granted unto you, nor the one for yourselves, 
And while ye are weeping and praying, ye cannot speak a single word from the writing which I have written. And that's the end of the quote. Now, if you've been following my material for a while, you know I don't consider the Enochian material inspired, but that doesn't mean it isn't authoritative. Certainly the New Testament authors considered it authoritative, even though we have no evidence that they treated it as inspired. So following that model, I don't mind using First Enoch as long as I'm not holding it up as God's word. The New Testament usage and adoption of those ideas should put our minds to rest on that. So anyway, we can see from First Enoch that the watchers were not considered to be eligible for any kind of forgiveness or the restoration of their former position or relationship with God. And the way that the Apostle Peter frames Jesus as a new and better Enoch in his letters really cements that position. Peter saw Jesus as a new Enoch. You mean like the way Paul had Jesus as the new Adam? Like Jesus is the one who does the job perfectly according to the type provided by the original? Yeah, yeah. It should be quite evident that when Jesus descended into the underworld following his death, proclamation that he made to them prior to his resurrection was not the announcement of any possibility of atonement or forgiveness or restoration, but instead was a reiteration or a fresh statement of their condemnation. And that is in alignment with the Old Testament theology on this, as we see in Psalm 82. This is all stuff that I've talked about in some detail in my book, Answers to the Giant Questions, but we can tie that into what we were talking about earlier on this episode of the podcast with regard to the relationship between atonement and blood. There is no other creature made by God that is named in such a way as to reflect the holiness imputed by God. There is no other creature made by God who has the express function and purpose of the representation of God in a physically embodied state. So you should be able to see how the blood of Jesus Christ is sufficient to make atonement for human transgression, but does not address the issue of divine transgression. We have absolutely nothing in Scripture that would indicate the possibility that God has imputed his holiness on divine beings in the same way that he has with humankind, either explicitly or implicitly. And we have to remember that the term holiness has more to do with being set apart for divine purpose than it does with any kind of moral conduct. Holiness and morality are not equivalent terms. You can throw divinity into that mix as well. It's not the same as morality. Being divine isn't the same as being good. And I say that because some people really have trouble with this idea that divine beings could actually be deserving of punishment. Yeah, I can see how people could get mixed up with those terms. Yeah, at the end of the day, whether you're holy or not, whether you're divine or not, if you break the rules, you face the consequences. And you might say, what rules? What, what rules are you talking about? There aren't any rules in the Bible for what the angels can or can't do. Yeah, what rules are you talking about? I don't think there are any rules in the Bible for what angels can or can't do. But angels are divine functionaries and they've got stuff to do. To do anything else is to transgress the creation order set in place by the Most High. So if your job is to stand there and say, holy, 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 then you better stand there and say, holy, holy, holy. And if your job is to deliver messages, then you better deliver them. If your job is to determine the destinies of mankind in cooperation with God and help to bring God's purposes to pass, then you better not be down there sowing your wild oats with the women folk. So they get what they deserve. So when we get to talking about the giants and the spirits of those giants who died, can we accept the plea that they are innocent by virtue of having been born this way? Again, violation of creation order. God makes everything distinct, and we do not have the authority to blur those lines. We make a lot of noise about the fallen sons of God and their role in creating the giants. But we have alarmingly little to say about the role of humankind in that process. 
Like we always say, it takes two to tango, and we were the ones set apart to represent God in human flesh. We don't bear all of the guilt in the origin of the Nephilim, but we were complicit. So the Nephilim represent a violation of creation order from both human and divine perspectives. This is why the author of First Enoch calls them bastards and reprobates. If their origin is a violation of creation order and the epitome of chaos, then surely their life is too. And you can see that reflected in the violence described in Genesis 6 and the greed and the abuse of power that the author of First Enoch picks up on as well. When we look at what becomes of the Nephilim, we see also that even in death, they transgress divine order. And that holds true for both the pre-flood and the post-flood giants. They continue, even in the afterlife, to attempt to hold dominion over mankind. At least the fallen watchers made petition to God and had the appearance of being repentant, but the demons that came forth from the bodies of the dead giants show no signs of any inclination toward repentance. So it should be no surprise that any talk of salvation for these entities is not on the table. Once again, the atonement of Christ was the blood of the word of God given for the people who were made to be the life of the word of God, literally the body of God in the world, restoring us to our original purpose and function because we are still able to be restored. If there's anything I want people to get from this episode, it's that understanding. I've never heard of put that way before but you know what i love it let's not forget as well that jesus is our great high priest on the basis that he alone among the elohim shares our humanity hebrews 2 verses 14 to 17 since therefore the children share in flesh and blood he himself likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death that is the devil and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. So there's just no way that any kind of creature outside of humanity can experience the atonement of Christ's death on the cross. It just doesn't do for them what it does for us. All right, folks, well, that's the end of our best of q a series for the answers to giant questions podcast when we come back next week i will be joined by my faithful co-host chris bather and we will be getting into the flood narrative so stick around for that it's going to be exciting can't wait please keep sending your questions in and we look forward to bringing you more answers to your giant questions it's time to wrap up today's episode, but if you want more, don't forget to get yourself a copy of Answers to Giant Questions. We're asking readers to please leave a review of the book on Amazon or Goodreads to help it become more visible in search results. Even if you just give it stars, that'll help. But a full review is certainly really appreciated. Please also leave a review of this podcast wherever you found us so that new listeners can find us here on the show. This podcast comes out every week, but you want to make sure you never miss an episode, so if you haven't already subscribed, do that now. 
and you'll get notified when each new episode drops. We'll catch you next time on the Answers to Giant Questions podcast. Thank you for listening to the Answers to Giant Questions podcast, a production of the Raven Creek Social Club. If you like what you heard today, please take a moment to rate or review the show. Music supplied under copyright by Great Forsaken, greatforsaken.com. You can get the book Answers to Giant Questions by TJ Stedman on Amazon in paperback and Kindle format. Check out the other podcasts at ravencreeksc.com and go to giantanswers.com for more answers to giant questions. Read the blog and catch us on the socials. Don't forget to subscribe and tell your friends about the show. Send us your giant questions and stay tuned to this podcast to get answers. We'll see you next time. Until then, stay safe and God bless.